All right, so once again, we've been going through Matthew for our Advent time. We won't actually hit the last passage uh, just because of the schedule. Uh, Danny hit that a little bit last week uh, when he filled in for us uh, from uh, Pillar. And uh, that really focusing on the, the fact that the, the son would be despised, and that's what really gets what hinted at here. That he will be uh, from Nazareth, uh, the despised one. But today we're really going to focus on verses 16 to 18, and let me just read those once again. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That is our passage of focus this morning. I wonder if you ever heard the phrase, that's not fair. (laughs) Probably if you're a parent, you've probably heard that one a lot. And if you're alive, you've probably said it a lot (laughs) this morning, yeah. That's not fair. Now, I don't know where kids get that statement. I don't know if they get it from their friends, they get it from television, they get it at school. Maybe they even pick it up from their parents. You know, as parents, oftentimes we don't like that phrase, that's not fair. Uh, But in reality, we feel it. I mean, maybe kids just intuitively say it when they realize the cruelties of this world. Right? This world is painful. We experience a lot of hardships in this world. Physical ailments, some that will never go away. Relational conflict that drags on. Slander. Anxiety. Depression, loss, that's what this world is characterized by, right? It's this roller coaster of life, the ups and the downs. And one of the hard things about it is that it's so unequally distributed, right? Not everybody gets the same deck of cards. And one of the hard things about following Jesus is that oftentimes we wish that Jesus would help us to avoid all those things, We want Jesus to keep us away from the hardships of life. But that's not what the gospel tells us is going to happen. And then one of the really hard things that can happen with hardships in life is that a particular time like Christmas or the holidays or uh, a birthday can actually exasperate some of the pain. Because what happens is this is supposed to be a time where you're experiencing joy and excitement and people around you are excited. They're, they're eager to go see family and yet you don't want to go see family because a dark cloud hangs over you when you do. Or this is a time where you've experienced loss or it's the first or the second or third Christmas season without a family member and it just brings back all the pain. And so a time like this, a room with people, you can have several people who are actually in quite anguish and distress when it should be a time when it's full of joy. And that makes it very, very difficult. 
Now, the great thing is that the, the Christmas message does not avoid pain and suffering. The Christmas message actually comes right into it. And the way the uh, author here, Matthew, tells the story, uh, the, the, the birth narrative actually comes right into the pain. But it's a little bit unexpected. You know, as we've followed the book of Matthew so far, it actually really starts out with a lot of excitement. The opening uh, passage with that genealogy, Jesus, the son of, uh, of David, the promised one who's going to be king over God's people. Jesus, the, the son of Abraham, the, the, the seed through whom God's going to bless the nations. I mean, this is exciting. Then the next passage, the virgin shall be with child. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. And we're told in chapter 1, he will forgive us, God's people, of our sins. I mean, this has started out wonderful. You get into chapter 2. And the wise men come bringing gifts to this king. And if you remember that passage, uh, he, he is the Davidic king who's going to come and shatter the enemies of God's people. And he's going to shepherd God's people to the ends of the earth. I mean, this has started out fantastic. Of course, then there is a, a little bit of a hiccup, right? Because Herod, uh, Herod catches wind of this child. And, and Herod, being the Roman leader of the region, who, who is oftentimes called the king of the Jews because he's, he's king over that whole jurisdiction, uh, jurisdiction, he hears about this king of the Jews and he's threatened. And having been accustomed to killing some family men members who he felt threatened by, who would try to take his throne, he went and, and did what he normally would do. He decides, I have to try to get rid of this child, wherever he is, and he finds out where the child is in Bethlehem, and so he orders his soldiers to go somehow put a stop to this and gets rid of all the children, male children, under the ages of two. Now, now when, as you're reading that, and if you're reading it for, for the first time, it's sort of like you're listening to this wonderful song on the record player. I know some of you like records still, and all of a sudden... There's, there's a scratch in, the, in the, the record. What happened? And something sounds off. Now, thankfully, in the story, Joseph and Mary are warned, remember. That's what we saw last week. They're warned to flee from Herod, who's coming after the child. So they, they go down to Egypt, and we saw that that is actually the fulfillment of Hosea's promise of a new exodus is going to come. He's reliving the path, the footsteps of Israel. But not everybody gets the warning. Bethlehem is left in great sorrow, weeping, confusion, because Herod carries out his plan to try to kill the Messiah. So the story has taken, taken a very sad, sad turn in verse 16. Now, Matthew actually doesn't go into great detail about verse 16, the event just says Herod carried it out, and that's what happened. But if you notice, uh, he wants us to read this uh, Herod's actions through a theological lens. He's not simply just telling his history, that Herod offed uh, all the children under two years old in Bethlehem. But he actually wants to tell it through a theological lens. You know, he could have just said verse 16, told us what the event, but then he stops. It's like putting on theological lenses to help the reader say, this is what this communicates to us. This is, this is the theme or the message of God through this event. 
And here in verse 17, he quotes then from Jeremiah, uh, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And this, this comes right out of Jeremiah. Uh, this, this, uh, this passage that Matthew is trying to link into has this theme about it that, that the salvation of God is on the far side of suffering. Or you might say, say it this way, the salvation of God comes through suffering. It's experienced through the suffering of God's people. Or you might say it this way, the hardships of God's people are the birth pains of the promised salvation to come. You might remember that, uh, that usage of birth pains from Romans 8, if you're familiar with that, where Paul talks about creation groaning. Where he says, the sufferings of this uh, present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation, remember, we're told, was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then he says, and we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth. And then he says, and not only creation, but we ourselves, we groan inwardly, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's using this, this picture of birth pains. Now, I've never given birth. Some of you have. So they, the, the, the women who have given birth could come up and explain the birth pains more, but I've only seen it from a, you know, a first, firsthand witness. It's this, the, the way the, the body is re, the responding to the, the pain and the, the whole process of pushing a baby out of the womb. Now, if you've ever heard birth pains, I mean, they can be loud and, and a, a different noise. It must be incredibly painful. And yet those birth pains are a sign that something's coming, Right? That when when that, the contractions start and the birth pain start, start coming, you, you, yes, it's painful, but soon, Lord willing, we will hold the child. And so that's, what, that's the, uh, the way Paul is using that illustration to say the sufferings that God's people encounter now are just, they're like birth pains for the salvation that is still yet to come. And so what I want to do is just go back to Jeremiah 31. And we'll see how Jeremiah is using this theme. And that's why Matthew is tapping into this to say, look, what's happening in Bethlehem, the sorrow, the weeping, is birth pains of the full salvation that God is bringing. So go back to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is, uh, has a nickname. Uh, who, he's known as the weeping prophet. Uh, Matthew, Matthew has already quoted from three other prophets, Isaiah in chapter 1, then he quoted from Micah, uh, then he quoted from Hosea. Now he's, uh, those three uh, minister uh, to God's people relatively in the same time period, uh, before the north had been exiled. Jeremiah is a little bit later, af after Isaiah, Micah, Hosea. Uh, the northern country, if you remember, uh, there was a split in Israel. The northern country had been exiled into Assyria, into the north. The, the southern tribes are still around, Judah, and uh, 
Jeremiah is ministering during that period, right before uh, the, the, the south gets exiled to Babylon. And in fact, he's known as the weeping prophet because he has a whole book in the, in the Bible called Lamentations. It's a l lament. He's, he's weeping because Jeremiah was left in Jerusalem. And as Babylon came in and destroyed the whole city, destroyed the temple, there is Jeremiah sitting in the rubble, writing about the weeping of what has happened to God's people. So Jeremiah is ministering during this period. Uh, most of his book, the, called Jeremiah, is about the, the period before the exile of the south, and it's leading up to it. And Jeremiah is going around, and he's telling the people of, of Judah that if they don't turn from their sin, they will experience the exile that God has promised. This right from Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. He keeps pointing to the northern tribe and saying, look, you're going to end up just like them. You must turn and worship God and stop worshiping these other things. But they refuse to turn. And so a lot of his book is warning of judgment, warning of judgment. And every once in a while you get this little blip of hope in the future. That you are going into exile and yet he'll say all of a sudden God will bring you back. God will be your refuge. Now when you get to chapter 30 and 31, the whole of 30 and 31 is all about God bringing his people back. Except one little spot uh, that Matthew has quoted. But let's start in verse 10. We're not going to read the whole thing, just so you can see this, uh, the way that Matthew uses this passage. Verses 10 to 17. Jeremiah, again, this is now the part where he's looking forward when God brings his people back. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it to the, in the close lands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather them. That's, that's God is the one who scattered Israel. He will gather them, and he will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Because the Lord has ransomed Jacob, he has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, that's Jerusalem, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young, young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. You see the picture he's painting here, this well-watered garden, fruit, wine, God's going to bring his people back and he's going to shepherd them and care for them. This is, the, this is indeed uh, what we've already seen in Hosea. The new exodus is coming. God's going to bring his people back from Babylon, bring them back from Assyria, bring them back into the land and care for them. And continuing on in the middle of verse 14, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and I will give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping, and keep your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. 
Now notice what happens there. Verse 15 is the one sad note. What, what he's doing there, uh, Jeremiah, uh, Ramah is, is the place to the north of uh, Jerusalem. They were being, uh, the southern country was going to be taken to the northwest, uh, northeast, excuse me, to, to Babylon. And Ramah was the city where Rachel was buried. Rachel being uh, the, the, the husband of, uh, how, how is it, Isaac? No, Jacob. Yeah, you start losing my, my history. Thank you, uh, Adrian. Uh, so he buries Rachel in Ramah, uh, and here he's calling back to that as, as the people of Israel are actually being rounded up, that Babylon's taking them, and they gather them in the city of Ramah, uh, and then basically disperse them. So it, it would be sort of like if, if, if uh, we were being taken captive, all of us, and in order to take us captive uh, to some other place, they take us over to the parking lot over at Planet Fitness, round us all up, and they say, here, you take the, that one from this family, take this one from that family too, and take that one, and take that one. We all get split up. You, you don't see your family anymore, and you're gone. And so Ramah became this place known as the place of weeping. And in particular, it's Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel being then the, the picture of Mother Israel. She's, she's the one that birthed Israel. And so she's buried there. So it's, she's not literally alive, weeping. He's using this picture, the place where Rachel is buried. She's now weeping for her children, Israel, because they're gone. They're no longer in the land. They were, they've been taken and they're, they've been taken captive. And so Jeremiah, alluding to this event, that uh, when, as Israel is, uh, Judah's taken and they're sent out of the land, the whole promised land is gone. God's people, it's empty. And so Rachel weeping from the tomb uh, for this travesty. But then notice what Jeremiah says. He says, keep your voice from weeping. Keep your eyes from tears. Because this isn't the end of the story. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's sorrow. But that on the far side of that pain is salvation. God is going to, if you caught that theme again and again, God will bring them back. God will bring them back. Because the whole theme of this chapter is that on the far side of suffering is the salvation of God. The hardships of God's people are the birth pains of the salvation of God. The salvation of God is the experience through suffering. Like I said before, we wish that the salvation of God allowed us to always avoid suffering. The theme of the passage is that no, God calls us through the suffering. And this is indeed a pattern that we see throughout Scripture. Right? You read of uh, numerous women who experienced the shame of barrenness. Right? Leah, Rachel herself, Rebecca, Hannah, all have this barren, barrenness and shame and God calls them to go through that on the far side of it is the salvation of God. Or you think of Joseph as his brothers sell him off uh, into Egypt. And he goes through year after year of being separated and mistreated, falsely accused. And yet on the far side of that, God brings his salvation. Or if you, you think of the, the three young, young men in uh, Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? They're thrown into the fire furnace, and on the far side of suffering is the salvation 
of God. Or Nehemiah, as he's trying to do the work of helping God's people and rebuilding the wall, and they keep being oppressed by Sanballat and others. And yet on the far side of that is the salvation of God. Or like Paul, the first we already looked at or thought of uh, from Romans 8, the sufferings of the present life are not worth comparing. On the far side of these sufferings is the salvation of God. Or we think of our very Lord, our, our Lord, who Jesus, who did nothing wrong, was falsely accused. He was slandered. He was rejected by his closest friends when he needed them most. And yet he was beaten and crucified as a criminal. And it was on the far side of that, of the, with the salvation of God. This indeed is, is a, a theme that runs right through Scripture. And the manger, the birth narrative... I think this part of Matthew screams to us that we have a Lord who can sympathize with us, our very weakness, walking through this earth in the pain and the sorrow that we experience. You see, God, it, it, the Lord Jesus didn't stay and say, okay, I'll rescue you, but I'm going to stay over there. Maybe I'll, I'll, we'll do a Zoom meeting, we'll figure this out, I'll stay out where it's safe. Instead, he actually comes in close, and he comes right into the pain and experiences it himself. So brother or sister, if you're here and you're, you are one of those people this season, and it is hard, you question, why, why do I have to suffer the hardships of this world again and again? I think this passage from Matthew, the Lord will want you to know, no, I come close. I experience that. The Lord Jesus knows your pain and your sorrow more than anybody else ever could. So I, I think that's the main theme that Matthew is going after here, is that the manger shows us that the Lord Jesus, uh, he comes into the pain. Because the salvation of God is on the far side of suffering. Now, I think that's a reality that we, uh, we know, but we don't like so much. Because if that's true, uh, we know that that actually goes against our very desires, Right? Typically, uh, if we all could, if we, if we could see into our hearts, the Jesus we want is the Jesus that frees us from all suffering. He protects us from suffering. He keeps it away from us. That's not the Jesus we're, we're given. That's not the, the way that Jesus comes into the world. That's not the life he promises his people. He promises us, indeed, in this life you will have suffering. So this message actually goes straight against our desires, and that, that makes it hard. It makes it difficult. It also goes against our logic. Our internal logic tells us that if God is loving, wouldn't he want us to avoid suffering? Wouldn't, isn't that what God's plan would be for? Wouldn't that be my best plan? And in fact, later in Romans 8, Paul raises this question, and he says, what? What will separate us from the love of God? You know this passage? And then he, he raises up some uh, possibilities. He says, will, will tribulation separate us from the love of God? Distress? Nice, I like you got this memorized. Persecution? Will that separate us from the love of God? How about famine? How about nakedness? And how about danger or sword? Will those separate us from the love of God? Now, what I understand, what Paul is probably doing, is that those types of hardships, the suffering of this world, tend to whisper in our ears and say, 
you know what? You're probably outside the love of God. God is not loving you. God doesn't love you. That's why this is happening. And it whispers in our ear again and again. And Paul, I think, wanting to raise that and say, what, what, could those po- things possibly separate us from the love, love of God? He says, no, exactly right. No. In all those things, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Right? It's in the midst of them. God calls us through them and loves us through them. And right before that, God had told us that God will work all things together for our good so that we will be shaped more into the image of the Lord Jesus. You see, our hardships, our sufferings, tend to tell us that God must not love us. That's the logic we have. And yet, this reality tells us our logic's off. No, it's not true that hardships mean that God doesn't love you. Nothing, if you're in Christ Jesus and you worship him as king, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus even the worst of hardships. Now the question is, is that just some sort of placebo? Like we just keep telling ourselves that so we feel better? I mean, I know that you probably know others in this church who are going through hard, painful situations. And it is good for our souls to be reminded again and again, no, 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 that does not mean that God doesn't love you. God loves you in the midst of that, and he will give you the strength that you need to get through it. Because on the far side of the suffering is the salvation of God. His love for you is everlasting. But is this just like something we do to make us feel better? Well, the, the great thing about this Jeremiah passage that uh, Matthew's tapping into and bringing forward is if you keep reading, uh, you can scan your eyes down to verse 31. This is one of the great anticipated passages of the New uh, Old, Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. You might even have a little header in your Bible that says the New Covenant uh, at Jeremiah 31, 31. So, so what Jeremiah is promising here is not simply salvation on the far side of suffering. That is true. But he's going to, he's going to describe a part, very particular type of salvation. And it is the New Covenant. Because as you remember in the first exodus, the exodus led to a covenant. Therefore, the new exodus shall lead to a new covenant. So follow along in this uh, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And remember the first covenant. God had given the stones, wrote them with his own hand, handed them to Moses. Moses brought them down to the people. Here the covenant says, no, I will, I will take that law, and I will, I will write it on their hearts. Not on hearts, not on stone, but I will write it on the, the hearts of my people. Meaning we're, we're going to actually be changed internally. The law is not outside speaking to us, but it's actually working on the inside. We're going to be fixed. We're going to be changed on the inside, continuing on. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This relational restoration. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one brothers, uh, his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? Because all of them will know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. 
because I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. This is the new covenant. We'll be internally changed and fixed from our brokenness. We will be relationally restored with God because we will be forgiven. All our sins remembered no more. And so Matthew then in particular, uh, after talking about that Hosea passage, that, that Jesus is coming to bring a new exodus, saying he's also bringing the new covenant. He's just alluding to this right out at the beginning of his book. But the question is then how does the new covenant come? Because the author of Hebrews tells us the, a covenant can only be inaugurated by blood. Something has to die in order for the covenant to get started, to be inaugurated. And that's where you've got to keep reading in the book of Matthew. Because the Lord Jesus himself will enter into the suffering, give his life to inaugurate this very covenant, to seal it. And brother and sister who are in Christ Jesus, this new covenant has been inaugurated. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper each week, if you remember those words on the cup, Jesus says, this cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Jesus declaring, I am inaugurating the new covenant by my blood. It is sealed. You cannot change it because it's based off of my death, not your, not your performance, but the death of the Lord Jesus. And so it's a glorious uh, claim that Matthew is making. The Lord Jesus has sealed the covenant and the salvation of God's people is on the far side of suffering, the salvation, particular salvation, of when we actually experience the fullness of this new covenant. When we are with God, we dwell in his presence, God is our God, we are his people, sin is no more, and we are fully and finally and forever fixed of our brokenness. Now the hard, the hard thing with uh, pain and suffering and sorrow is that oftentimes that blinds our eyes to that, right? It's like a fog. Uh, when, you, when you are outside and it's foggy, fog has a way of uh, obscuring reality, right? If, if you, let's say you, you, t you drive the same way again and again and again and you always know uh, there's a spot that I like coming up Loomis when you, when you finally get up towards the top, I think it's by Cold Spring, and you hit that, and all of a sudden you can, you can see the, the U.S. Bank building and a little bit of some of the, the taller buildings downtown. It's just a great picture. You can see a little bit of the, the bridge. And uh, I, I, I love that part of the city. Or other parts here coming up like the, the, along the coast there, you can kind of see a little bit of the skyline. Now, on a foggy day, if I'm driving that, I, I come up that ridge and... I can't see the city. What does that mean? The city's gone? Well, no. It's the fog is obscuring the reality. And suffering has this way of kind of just blinding the eyes of our heart. The eyes of our heart of faith, trusting that God has a new city, a new Jerusalem, a new earth for us, where he's prepared a place for us to be with him. And yet when suffering comes, it has this way of of not allowing us to see it. I wonder, is it true? Is there really a land like that? Because all I experience is pain. But you who are blood-bought by the covenant, uh, who, are, who are partakers of the new covenant, let me remind you today that because of that child in the manger, because of his work on the cross, his resurrection, there is a land where there's no more pain. There is a land where one day all of your sorrow will be gone. 
There is a, a day when all your tears will be wiped away. There's a land where death is no more. There, there's a land where, where there's no more anxiety. No more sleepless nights, worried about the conversation you have next week, the appointment you have, worried about your financials, worried about the health of your kids. There's a land where, where depression can no longer dig its nails into the backs of God's people. Where you just wonder, what, what's the point of life anymore? There's a, where, there's a land where the lame are given legs to walk, and where the blind are given eyes to see, and the deaf are given ears to hear. There's a, there's a land where when uh, all, all your emotional pain is made undone. And you are well again. Brother, sister, there's a land where all the sickness is gone. The chronically ill who wake up in pain, eat breakfast in pain, eat lunch in pain, eat dinner at pain, go to bed in pain, wake up in the middle of the night in pain, well, it will be wiped away. There's a land where you will not sin against another person again. Hallelujah. There's a land where you will have no more fear, where you have no more doubt. Brother or sister, there's a land where you're going to be free and truly live as human and trust God every day. That's a glorious land. And we celebrate the fact that we will get there, not because of how we perform, but because of the, the, the coming entering in of the Son of God, living a perfect life on our behalf, dying the death that we deserve, trading place with, places with us, and rising from the dead. And so this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's wonderful to partake of the Lord's Supper today based off this theme. We think about the birth, with this, this is certainly exciting. The Advent, God has come to dwell with us, but he's come for a very particular purpose, to glorify God in dying for sinners, to bring us back to him. So if you're a follower of Christ this morning, we invite you to partake with us, uh, provided you're walking in repentant faith in the Lord Jesus, proclaiming him as the king and trusting in him alone for salvation before God in his death and resurrection. If you're walking in repentant faith, we invite you to come and uh, participate. If you're not walking in repentant faith or you do not trust in the Lord Jesus, we ask that you not partake uh, this morning. So come to the, the center part of the aisle, grab the elements, and return to your seats, and we will partake together. We partake of the uh, bread. I encourage you, brother, sister, to remember, remember that the Lord Jesus encountered incredible suffering. He knows how to sympathize you when you're weak, when you feel broken, when you're experiencing pain and hardship and sorrow, the sadness of the world. He too was rejected. He too was slandered, falsely accused. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Christian, you have reason to hope today. Regardless of what the world throws at you today or this week, there's reason to hope that on the other side, you will see God and be welcomed into his presence. He will be your God. You will be his people. All sorrows and pain will be wiped away.
It's not because of the week you had. It's not because of the week you're going to have. It's because of the blood of the Lord Jesus inaugurating the new covenant on your behalf. The Lord Jesus, in the same way, took the cup after supper, saying, this cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.